invite you to rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, looking at Jesus walking by, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard John say this and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said, what is it you're seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come and you will see. And so they went and came and stayed with him. And they stayed with him that day because it was about the 10th hour. Now, one of the two disciples who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He went and found at first his brother and said, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, we would now so hear, read, mark, learn, and digest this, your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Andrew is the model of evangelism. He's the model of inviting people to come and meet Jesus. Because Andrew is not confident in his own ability, what Andrew is confident is in the person of Jesus. See, Andrew is the model of evangelism because he's not confident in himself and his own evangelistic ability. He's confident as an evangelist because he's confident in Jesus. This is why he's a model for us. You know, so often we are intimidated by evangelism. We hear texts like this read and go, oh no, it's going to be a sermon on evangelism. We get nervous. Partly because we've seen evangelism done very badly. And also because we often feel like evangelism is beyond us. It's been done badly. We have all kinds of caricatures out there in culture about sort of aggressive, abusive forms of evangelism that we don't want to be part of. It's like the, you know, the drunk man gets on the bus late at night and as he's wobbling down the middle of the aisle, some little church lady says to him, you know, you're going to hell. And he goes, oh, I got on the wrong bus again. <laughs> but it's also been done in a sense that it's beyond us. We, we think of evangelism in these terms of big tent meeting revivals. We think of Billy Graham. We think of really effective apologists who can argue from every angle about faith. And I think, man, this is beyond me. What if they ask me a question about Jesus I can't answer? Andrew is the model for evangelism. He's the model for how we invite people to come and meet Jesus. Because Andrew doesn't demonstrate any confidence in himself no confidence in his own ability to argue that Jesus is who he is. He just has confidence in Jesus. It's not about program. 
It's not about him being persuasive. It's about him being able to invite another person because he's so confident that when they meet Jesus, Jesus will be more than enough. Jesus will get the work done. We often can feel like Moses saying, I'm not eloquent enough. We can feel like Jeremiah saying, I cannot speak, I'm but a youth. But the truth is, Andrew becomes our model. Simply find those around us who aren't yet following Jesus and invite them to come. Simon brought his brother to Jesus. And Jesus did the rest. See, friends, what we see as we unpack John 1, verses 35 to 42 this morning, is that our confidence in evangelism grows as our confidence in Jesus grows. That we will be more confident in inviting people to meet Jesus as we are more confident in Jesus' person, who he is, more confident in the purpose he's bringing into this world, and as we are more confident in the power of Jesus that has been brought to bear into each and every human life that would receive him. As we are more confident in his person, more confident in his purpose, and more confident in his power, we will find ourselves more confident in inviting others. See, first, our confidence, we will have more confidence in evangelism as we have more confidence in Jesus' person. It's interesting, the question that Jesus asked the disciples as they're following behind, verse 38, he says, what is it you're seeking? And what do they say? They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? It's like, you know, have you got an Airbnb in town? You know, I mean, are they asking about zip code? Are they asking sort of like what class of residence he's living in? No, this is actually a very intentional question by a student a disciple, an apprentice, about a potential rabbi. Because a student will follow a rabbi because they want to know how that rabbi lives. Show me not just where you live, they're asking, show us how you live. Jesus, we wanna know how you do the things you do, how you live your life before God. Show us how you're living this life, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Come on, come and see. See, the amazing thing about Jesus is we look at his person, as we look at his life, we find a life like no other. We see the greatness of Jesus' life in his character, but we also see the greatness of Jesus' life in his claims, and those have to go side by side. See, first of all, we see the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus' person in his character, right? Here's the guy that loved the unlovable, who, you know, went and met with the outcasts, who would welcome children in his arms, would speak against abusive power, would wash his own students' feet, who would say to his disciples, I come not to be served, but to serve, and who said crazy things like, turn the other cheek, and then he did it. It's why Time Magazine, a secular publication will say of Jesus of Nazareth, he is the greatest picture of purity, love, and selflessness that the world has ever seen. It sounds like the Gospel of John. That's Time Magazine. Everyone who looks on Jesus sees that character. I like how Matthew Paris, who's an atheistic journalist, what he says about Jesus. 
I'm saying that even if you're not a believer yet, you just look at his character and it says something. This is what Matthew Paris, an atheist, he's not yet there yet, says. He says, I've got such huge respect for Jesus because his life was so radical. It was so inconvenient. If Jesus had not existed, the church most certainly would not have invented him. He's got more confidence than some Christians. This is why John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. You look at his life, you look at his person, at his character, and you see something we've never seen before, unparalleled. But it's not just his character. He's not just this wonderfully moral person. Oh, how we'd like to keep him in that box. He's so much more. Because then he makes claims as wild as his character is. I mean, amazingly wild. How wild are his claims? I mean, just keep reading John's gospel. He's going to have the seven I am statements in John. He's going to say in John 6, I am the bread of life. He's going to say in John 8, I'm the light of the world. John 10, I am the door. John 10, I am the good shepherd. John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 15, he's going to say, I am the true vine. And if you think these I am statements are just sort of bravado, he's actually claiming nothing less than being the son of God. Because by saying I am... It goes right back to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. When Moses says, I'm not eloquent, I need some help here. When the the Israelites ask me who sent me, I need your name, O God. And what does God say? He says, tell them I am sent you. This is the name of God, I am. So when he's saying all these I am statements, he's saying more than just I'm really great. He's saying, I am the one you've been looking for. And to be clear, John 8 Before Abraham was, I am, he says. This is why the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to kill him. There's this moment in John 18. After Gethsemane, after he's been sweating drops of blood as he contemplates the cross. The party coming to arrest him arrives at the garden. And they ask him almost the same question. Or he asks them the question, what is it you're seeking? Just like he says here in John 1. What is it you're seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And do you know what he says? Your English Bible gets it wrong. He doesn't say, I am he. The he's not in there. He just says, I am. And what happens? The entire party falls down on the ground with an earthquake. Because as he speaks these words, this is the very God himself speaking to us. Oh, by the way, he did things that only God could do. He would say, you know, your sins are forgiven. These are the claims he makes again and again in his life. It's the reason why C.S. Lewis famously in Mere Christianity makes the Lord, lunatic, and liar argument saying of Jesus that a man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. It reminds me of the five-year-old who's drawing a picture 
And her mom says, honey, what are you drawing? She says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she says, now, honey, no one knows what God looks like. And she says, I know I've got to finish my picture. What Jesus is doing in his very person is not just modeling the best of what it means to live a human life. He's also showing us very God. This is God in the flesh. In the words of Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Or in the words of John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen him and beheld his glory. Do you see how we become more confident inviting people to Jesus as we become more confident in Jesus, in his person, who he is, but also as we are more confident in his purpose. See, it's interesting in verse 42, when Jesus sees Simon, he says, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. Now this is foreshadowing what he's going to say to him in Matthew 16 later in the story when he says you are truly Peter the rock and on you I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it what he's saying to Peter in this moment to Simon in this moment Simon I just met you but guess what there is so much more to you than you even realize there is so much more within you purpose and meaning and value and a plan than you could even dream. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can look at a person and see that much purpose. And oh, how we long for it. We long for purpose. We long for meaning. We long to know that our life means something. There's this echo within us that I think goes right back to our creation that says, I feel like I've misplaced something, that there's a life I'm supposed to be living that is more than this. And that's what Jesus sees. You are not merely Simon, you are the rock. And for those of us who read the rest of the story, there's a whole lot of Simon in there that's gonna have to get dealt with. But Jesus can see it. You know, it's interesting, we're going through a season right now preparing our second oldest daughter uh, to record all her uh, auditions for music school applications. So she can apply to, you know, not only get in, but we pray get really big, enormous scholarships, pray with me now, uh, for, for college. And so as she prepares her audition video, she's a soprano, she's got to sing like all these different pieces. I mean, it covers the wide variety of, you know, German and French and Italian and all of it. And it's interesting, she's getting it all ready to send it in, but her voice teacher said to me just yesterday, she said, you know, and her voice teacher is a professor of music at one of the colleges here. She says, you know, it is interesting that we get them to do all this you know, they, they send in all these pieces. She said, any good voice teacher can tell within four bars whether the student has potential or not. You don't need all this stuff. You can tell within four bars. Jesus looks upon a human being and instantly sees it all. Knows exactly what can happen in your life. Knows exactly what his plan and purpose is for you. And it's why it drove the Pharisees crazy The Pharisees hated him because what did he do? He was constantly gathering around him the wrong kinds of people, prostitutes, tax collectors, grievous sinners. The Pharisees, that's all they saw, prostitutes, tax collectors, terrible, grievous sinners. What Jesus saw around table with him was a future martyr, a future church leader, a future bishop, future disciples. 
who would one day not only go to heaven, but reign with him over creation and rule over the angels. That's what Jesus saw when he looked at a broken human life. Purpose. Purpose like no other. That's why Jesus can say to each and every one of us, anyone that we would bring in with us, anyone who we'd invite, say, come to church with me, to that person, Jesus will say, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come follow me and I will make you into what you've been made for. See, we become more confident as evangelists the more confident we are in Jesus' person and in Jesus' purpose for us. But finally, we become more confident as evangelists, like Andrew, as we become more confident in Jesus' power. Because it's going to take a lot to turn a Simon into a Peter. There's going to have to be an amazing amount of power brought to bear to turn a sinner into a saint. To turn a broken and backwards person into someone who's beloved and beautiful before God. There's an incredible amount of power that's going to have to be wielded for that. It's not going to be tinkering. It's going to require much more than adjustments and a little bit of fixing here and there. It's not like a little bit of a renovation. No, what's required is a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. Because what is required, like the entire Israeli temple system, where the priest, the high priest, would come on behalf of the whole nation, lay his hands upon the sacrificial animal at the temple, confess the sins of the nation on that animal's head, thereby transferring the guilt into the animal, and then the animal dies, bearing the guilt and consequences of that sin. So as that image over thousands of years was played out, now Jesus stands here with John the Baptist, his cousin, pointing to him and saying, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the one that will bear everything that is Simon about you so you can become Peter. This is the one that is going to bear everything sinful about you so you can become a saint. This is the one that's going to bear everything broken and backwards in you so that you can become beautiful and beloved before God. That's what it means to be the Lamb of God. That he would take everything wrong that's in us on himself and take that punishment and would take everything that's in himself, the righteousness of God, and place it on us. I mean, there's a reason, I've said this many times, there's a reason, a good reason, that Anglicans aren't named after our most senior theologians. You know, our best theologians. Because the Lutherans have Luther and the Calvinists have Calvin our greatest theologian is a man named Richard Hooker. <laughs> yeah, it takes a second, doesn't it? I know, I know, I know. But these are the words of Richard Hooker, our greatest of Anglican theologians, describing this incredible, wondrous transfer of his righteousness onto us and our sinfulness onto him. This is what it means that he has exerted the very power of God to change us from Simon into Peter. He, Hooker says, let it be accounted folly or frenzy or fury or whatsoever. This is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this that man hath sinned and God hath suffered. 
that God hath made himself the sin of man and that men are made the righteousness of God. This is the power that has been brought to bear into our lives and to all lives who would come and be introduced to Jesus. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Andrew is our model of evangelism because he's not confident in himself. He's confident in the person, the purpose, and the power of Jesus. The more confident we are in the person and the purpose and the power of Jesus, the more confident we become in inviting others to come and meet him. You know, there's a great story of a man named Albert McMakin. Albert McMakin was a new convert to Christianity, 24 years of age. He was really wanting to invite people to come and know Jesus, but didn't quite know how, didn't feel he was eloquent. But there was an evangelist coming to town. He thought, all right, I'm going to invite them to come to church. They're going to hear the gospel. So he's getting all his friends to come. One of his friends would not come. Said, I'm not interested in that religious stuff. This was a good looking man, popular with the ladies, didn't need any of that religion. And so he said, Well, hey, how about this? How about you just drive the van? Because the guy owned the van. You drive the van and bring us there. You don't need to come in if you don't want to. Well, he said, Fine, I'll drive the van. I'm not coming in. He drove them there. He heard the message coming out of the tent, sort of wandered in the back of the tent, listened, heard about the person of Jesus, incomparable, his claims, his character heard about the purpose that Jesus had for his life to transform him and heard about the power that Jesus had wielded, pouring out his own lifeblood, his own body, that he could be changed. And he gave his life to Christ. He said, all right, I'm gonna gonna be a Christian. He gave his life to Jesus that day. And what's interesting with this story is that young man at the back of the tent that got converted, the guy that was just gonna drive the van, ended up evangelizing more people in the history of the world, we think, than anyone else because that man was Billy Graham. The whole point of the story is this. You and I both know we we all can't, most of us, be Billy Graham. But we can all be Albert McMakin. We can all invite our friends, those who do not know them. You know, today we're celebrating Common Cup again for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic. And the Common Cup is part of the sacramental symbol that we are sharing together. We're common. We're united together. It's a sharing in this meal around the table. And it's beautiful. And we're celebrating that. I'll give some instructions at communion if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But that common sharing of the cup, this incredible feast. But you know what's interesting? As we come and share this common cup and go, oh, look, we're sharing with each other. Look across the rail, see each other is to ask ourselves that this is all about sharing in this incredible sacrifice of Jesus. Who's not at the table today? Who's not sharing in this meal who should be? Who in our life could be here at the rail with us sharing in all of this? Don't just enjoy the common cup for the image of sharing it presents for us as a body, also ask yourself, who should be sharing in this 
as well. Andrew is this picture of evangelism. He's confident in Jesus. Just bring him to Jesus. Jesus will do the work. You know, D.T. Niles, the Sri Lankan evangelist, I love, he says this. He says, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And Andrew first found his brother, Simon, and said, we found the Messiah, which is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.